Good morning. Welcome to H2O. Um, as it's already been said, and you hopefully know, it is Father's Day. And so it's kind of cool that this morning we're going to get to do something. This is, this is only the second time we've ever actually done this in our church. Uh, somebody pointed out before a service, like, you know, I don't know that I've ever even thought that we would have a baby dedication here. Um, obviously, they were not here when we dedicated Anya. But uh, this morning, we're going to be dedicating Titus, okay? Uh, he's, he's here. If you can't hear him, I promise you, he's up here. Um, hopefully, most of you guys know, but this is Grant and Cassie. Um, Grant is one of the pastors of our church. Um, Cassie's on staff. This is Anya, their oldest, and this is Titus, their youngest. And so Titus was just born, and so we want to make it clear that in our church we do not baptize infants. Um, that's something that we believe that baptism is for after you put your faith in Christ. Um, then you follow the Lord into baptism. But we also think it's important uh, to, to realize that as parents, Grant and Cassie have a great responsibility, and that's that they want to raise up their children in the faith. Um, and so what they're doing this morning is they're coming before us and saying, hey, one, we promise to raise Titus up in the faith to the best of our ability, but also they need our help as their church to support them. And I know as a church, you guys do a great job supporting them. I think they feel that. Um, Anya has a lot of friends, and now Titus has a lot of friends. And but what we want to do this morning is join together as a church uh, to pray for Grant and for Cassie, uh, for Anya, and specifically for Titus uh, as he develops and grows up. Um, continues to learn how to cry and poop and eat and all those kind of things, but eventually that he would understand, take hold of, and accept the word of the Lord, uh, that he would put his faith in Christ as his Savior. Okay, so let's, let's join together and let's pray for them. We're going to pray, okay, Anya? Okay, we're going to pray. Lord, we want to pray for Titus, but we want to pray for Cassie and for Grant. Uh, we want to pray for Anya. We want to pray for this family. Lord, we ask that you would watch over them and be with them. Um, give Grant the ability to lead, Cassie the ability to submit herself to you, uh, that together as a family, Lord, that they would all walk before you in hope, uh, that they would know that you're their Savior, you're the one that offers them the hope of eternal life. Uh, Lord, we know that you love them and care for them, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Love you guys. You can give them a hand. <laughs> All right, thank you guys for praying for them, but more importantly that, for real, uh, just supporting them in their day-to-day -day life, being there for them, um, offering your service to them, and then, you know, once Titus is old enough, uh, start interacting with him in very meaningful ways. Uh, now, it's interesting that uh, this summer, if you've been around, you know that we're in the book of Acts, and in the book of Acts, the church is expanding, okay? So it starts off with a small group of people in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit comes down and the church expands. And this morning we just see that, you know, Grant and Cassie's family, they're expanding. You know, they've now doubled. They were two and now they're four. Uh, and that's pretty exciting. If you were here on Thursday, um, hopefully you remember that we talked about Cornelius and Peter and how Cornelius was this Roman soldier uh, that God sent a vision to. And, and in this, he said, send for Peter and Peter's going to tell you the good news. And so Peter went and told him the good news. As we enter into our text this morning, we actually are going to go over a little bit of that again uh, because word has reached Jerusalem that salvation has come to the Gentiles. And there's actually some concern over that. And so we're going to look at the text. We're going to see what's going on. And hopefully um, God is going to move this morning and specifically that we're going to see how much God loves not only the people that had been his forever and, and since he called Abraham and the Israelites, but also all people. Uh, that, that now salvation is available to all of us. So let's pray, and then we're going to look at the text. Father God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for um, your goodness and your grace, the, 
the love you demonstrate to us, Jesus, your willingness to come and live a perfect life, die on the cross and raise again, Lord. Um, I ask that as we look into Acts this morning, Lord, that you would, you would work in our church, uh, Lord, that the church would be encouraged and edified, Lord, and that, uh, Holy Spirit, you would speak. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you've got your Bible, uh, go ahead and turn to Acts 11. It'll be on the screen behind me, uh, but I know for me, I find it helpful to follow along so I can go back and reference it, uh, make sure that I'm saying the things that actually are there. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to start in verse 1. The apostles and the brothers and sisters who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter began to explain to them step by step. I was in the town of Joppa praying, and I saw in a trance an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners from heaven, and it came to me. When I looked closely and considered it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts, the reptiles and the birds of the sky. I also heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, I said, for nothing impure or richly unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice answered from heaven a second time, saying, What God has made clean, you must not call impure. Now this happened three times, and everything was drawn up into heaven again. At that very moment, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where they were. The Spirit told me to accompany them with no doubts at all. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we went into the man's house. He reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and call for Simon, who is also named Peter. He will speak a message to you by which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came down on them, just as it ended on us in the beginning. I remembered the word of the Lord and how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he also gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I possibly hinder God? When they heard this, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, So then God has given repentance, resulting in life, even to the Gentiles. Okay, now in this passage, we see that Peter gives his testimony of what happened in Caesarea with Cornelius. We can hear the word testimony in a Christian context, and oftentimes we think of our own conversion story. Last Sunday in Acts, we saw Paul's conversion story, how he went from death to life after an encounter with Jesus. Later in Acts, Paul will tell his conversion story again to both the crowd at the temple in Jerusalem and also to King Augustus and Festus after being arrested. This is really important. During his sermon last week, Grant called up Zane to share his conversion story with us. Telling others how we came to be saved from our sin is a powerful tool for the gospel. But telling how we came to Christ is not the only way that we can give testimony. It can be about any way we have seen God work, whether it be in our lives or others' lives around us. Here in Acts 11, in verse 2 and 3, Peter is faced with an accusation that he went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So he explains what happens. He admits that, yes, in fact, he did go to uncircumcised men. And considering he stayed for a few days, I'm guessing he probably ate with them and more significantly fellowshiped with them. Now, maybe you're thinking, why is this an issue? Like, why would that be a problem if he ate with them? Jesus ate with sinners and outcasts, and the disciples were there with him when he did it. The gospel had already been received in Samaria. So why is it an issue that these Gentiles now have responded in Caesarea? It comes down to Jewish law and customs. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant God gave to Abraham. It's an important marker of what God called his people to do. And we're going to come back to that. 
But the Jewish custom of the time was not to associate with Gentiles. Sharing a table with a Gentile could open yourself up to all kinds of potential uncleanliness. You could be served food sacrificed to idols, eat improperly prepared dishes, consume the wrong types of food, or food that had not been tithed on. We don't need to get into all the details about this, but this was an actual barrier, a real barrier to the church and the Gentiles being included in it. As Peter tells his story, we see several aspects of a testimony. One is that it can be a defense of the faith. The truth of what happened is questioned in a public and accusatory way, so Peter answers with his story. Two, it demonstrates God's plan. This was not Peter's idea. In the vision, he actually rejects the food offered to him, but he is told not to call something impure that God has made clean. He goes with the men because he was told to do so by the Holy Spirit and to accompany them with no doubts. The timing is perfect. Right as the vision ends, these three men show up and they're like, hey, we're looking for Peter. And Angel is the one who told Cornelius to send for Peter. The angel tells Cornelius that he and his household will be saved. And eventually the Holy Spirit comes down on the Gentiles. This is all God's idea. Three, it demonstrates God's power. Just as the Holy Spirit came down on the apostles in Jerusalem, so too he comes down on the Gentiles in Caesarea. Peter references Jesus' words in Acts 1. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which Jesus said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. And that's exactly what happens. The Holy Spirit testifies himself to the legitimacy of the Gentiles receiving the Holy Spirit and being saved. Fourth, it results in glory being given to God. This is really, really important. There was nothing else for the accusers to say. All they could do was give glory to God. It's like, well, this happened, so praise be to God. Now, we can also testify to the power and goodness of God in this way. Let's tell our conversion stories. Let's also bring attention to the ways that we have seen God work more recently. I was saved from my sin, brought into new life with Christ a long time ago. And that doesn't make my story any less powerful. I should still tell it, and I do. But I've also experienced God work in many ways since then. This is good. Like, I would hope so. Um, I, I became a Christian back in 1998. If I hadn't seen God work since 1998, that would be confusing and sad and, quite frankly, alarming. You know? So it's okay to talk about the ways that I've seen God work since then. So I'm just going to give you an example. Uh, I know some of you have heard me tell this story before, but uh, a few months ago, uh, one of my best friends from high school calls me. He said, Danny, because he calls me Danny, he said, Danny, um, my brother's not doing well. Um, he's in the hospital. He, he had been struggling with alcohol for a long time, and so he had liver issues. But he also had not worked out and not taken care of himself. And so he actually had a leg issue, the fact that they were going to potentially have to amputate his leg. And because of his leg, this was hindering them to be able to work on his liver, because if they amputated his leg, he would probably die because his liver wasn't strong enough to sustain him. Okay, so of course this is very concerning, but I know that this guy is, is not someone who was very serious about his faith. Um, he didn't care about church. Once he graduated from high school, he stopped going. Um, he was kind of that cool older brother that, you know, he listened to really cool music like Pink Floyd and Pearl Jam and Led Zeppelin, and we thought he was really cool, but he, he did not take God very seriously. And so my friend told me that his sister had actually gone into the hospital and seen their brother, and she had laid out the gospel before him and shared with him what Jesus had done for him. And he moved to a, to a point of, of pretty harsh resistance. He said, you know what, I, I've, I've always kind of been agnostic and not really care, but I'm actually an atheist now. Like, I totally and completely reject God and his existence. 
And so as my friend is sharing this with me, I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, that's, that's really tough. And, and so he asked me, would you pray for him? And he said, would you pray for my family? Uh, would you pray for his health? But ultimately, would you pray for his salvation? And so I'll be honest, I did not have personally a lot of hope and faith in this situation. I was like, I know this guy. Um, I, I just don't know. I, I just don't see him changing his mind. Um, but I did pray because my friend asked me to do so. And so I would check in with him and text him and ask what was happening. And, and a couple weeks later, he calls me again. And uh, he says, Danny, because again, that's what he calls me. And he said, um, I, I've got an update on my brother. And uh, like he was in the hospital and he actually called for his doctor to come in. And the doctor went in. This doctor was actually my doctor when I was a kid. And, and he's, a, he's a believer. And, and he asked the doctor to pray for him. And so in that moment, he, he prayed with the doctor and he actually put his faith in Christ. And then a couple days later, his health actually got worse, and the doctor told him he was going to die, and he said, that's fine, I'm ready. I'm ready to go home and be with Jesus. And I, don't, I know I'm probably not communicating this very well, but that was an, an utter and complete reversal, uh, one that, again, I did not personally have a lot of hope or faith in, um, but now he's passed away, but he's in eternity with God. And, and that's such a better place to be at than where he was before when he was here on earth. And that's just one example of God moving, and this was like three months ago. There's been more examples than that. In fact, I think either next week or the next week, you guys are going to hear more stories from Costa Rica and what God's doing there. But God's also moving here in our lives as well. Okay, so let's remember that. God moves and he continues to move. Now I want us to do, let's go back to the text. Uh, we're going to keep reading in Acts 11 and going to see what's happening here. We're going to pick up in verse 19. It says, Now those who have been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the good news about Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. News about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And large numbers of people were added to the Lord. Then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught large numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Okay, what we're seeing here in the book of Acts is a time of significant transition. The promised Messiah, God in the flesh, Jesus has come to the earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and the Holy Spirit has come down to empower the church. That's actually a, a lot. It's a lot going on in a short period of time. And this is a huge adjustment for the Jewish community. There's so much happening that we can't possibly talk about it all, but I do want to look at a couple of aspects. So first, let's think about this from a geographical perspective. I know it's not the first thing we probably think about when you're reading the Bible is like geography. I don't even know. How many of you guys actually like geography? Anybody? Okay, we got some folks. Okay, good. Grant, big time. Joel, Ben, okay, good. We got some people that are fans of geography. I'm cool with geography. I feel like I'm pretty good at it. Um, but, you know, sometimes we, we, we need that GPS. What are we going to do? Um, but, but right before Jesus is taken up into heaven, he says this to his disciples. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Now, for, for most of us, we probably aren't as familiar with the geography of, oh, hey now, hey, I'll back up, it's cool. 
I'll back up. Um, we're not as familiar with the geography of the, the, the Middle East, Palestine, the Mediterranean Sea, to necessarily know what that means. And so I've got a couple of maps for us this morning, okay? So if you like maps, this is your opportunity to look into them. All right, so this is the first map. Okay, so do you see there's that, that kind of lake right there? It's called the Dead Sea. Just to the left of that, Jerusalem. You guys heard of Jerusalem? Okay, that's Jerusalem right there. Okay, that is where the Holy Spirit came down on the apostles and the disciples and where they start speaking in tongues and then 3,000 people get saved, okay? So we could just say Jerusalem is the beginning of the church in that sense, okay? So you see right below that, there's Bethlehem and then it says Judea. So Judea is kind of like the state, okay? That's like the state that Jerusalem is in. Um, That's the area that's very heavily populated by Jews. And so the gospel starts to spread into that area, just like Jesus said it would. Okay, and then just north of there, we see Samaria. Okay, uh, Philip, just a few chapters before, takes the gospel to Samaria, and the Samaritans respond. There's some that come to faith. Okay, so that's what's happening there. And if you keep going a little bit northwest, you see Caesarea right there on the water. Okay, that's where Cornelius was. Um, he was there. Um, the gospel came there. Peter defended that situation. And now it's, you see how it's spreading out? Okay, now let's go to the next, the next picture. Okay, all right, now we've, 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 we've zoomed out, and this is the Mediterranean Sea. Okay, hopefully you've at least heard of Rome. That's, that's a pretty famous one. Maybe Athens. But here you see Jerusalem again. Okay, so the, the message has also gone to Cyprus and to Antioch and Phoenicia. So do you see how it, it's spreading out? You see how it's, you, you see that? We got that? Okay, cool. All right, good. All right, I just want you to get that in your mind and see it's spreading, and then eventually it's going gonna, it's gonna to keep going. Okay, cool. All right. Now, from a logistical aspect, it makes sense that these places are where the ends of the earth start. That's what, that's what Jesus said. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, the ends of the earth. It's going to spread out typically in this fashion, but also there's connections to these places. Okay, one of the places it mentions is Tyre and Sidon. And in Luke 6, there's people from that area of the world, Phoenicia, that actually hear Jesus share and are exposed to him. Jesus also encounters a Sidonian widow in Luke 4. Barnabas is from Cyprus. Nicholas, one of the first deacons, is from Antioch. So do you see how not only it's expanding this way, but there's actually it's going places where there's already connections with people that are believers, that are followers of Jesus. Now, I do want to point out, just kind of as a side note, it's pretty cool that, see how there's these, these men here that go to Antioch? doesn't say their names, doesn't say if they're like Bob or Susan, or doesn't, we don't know. We don't know who they were. They're unnamed people, but God uses them in a great way. But we can't say like, oh man, so-and-so did a great job. All we can say is, is that God, God did a great job. So I think it's cool that, that God's the one who receives the glory. We can't even say this specific person did this thing. We're just saying God is doing this thing. And so even though we know Peter and John and Barnabas and Saul's names, I think it's important to remember that God is the one at work. Okay, so let's talk about Antioch. I'm guessing most of you are not experts in Antioch. You probably don't know that much about it, so I'm going to tell you something about it. One, it's a a strategic place. Um, Not only is it relatively close to Jerusalem, it's not too far away, um, but it also has a large Jewish population. It's actually one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire. Some people have estimated that it might have been the third largest, so Rome, Alexandria, Egypt, and then Antioch. It's possible. It was on prominent trade routes, It was also a very religious city. Uh, There would have been synagogues for the Jewish people to worship, but there was lots of other stuff happening. Okay, there was a temple to Zeus and a presence of the Roman imperial cult. There was a nearby temple to Artemis and Apollos. Uh, There was strong connection to Egyptian and Greek worship. And there was even the ancient god of Baal uh, was worshipped here in Antioch. So there was a lot happening in the religious sphere. 
And this is the city that multiple missionary journeys go out and sending uh, specifically Paul and Barnabas out to the unreached world. Okay, now let's think about this situation from a theological perspective, which is probably the, the, the way you would normally think about things from the Bible. Um, the narrative in verse 19 that we just read picks up from where Acts 8-4 left off. And that's following the intense persecution of the church after Stephen is martyred. Um, 8-4 says this. It says, those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. Now, maybe this actually reminds us of what Zane shared last week as part of his testimony. As he was sharing, he brought up a, a verse from Genesis 50. When Joseph's brothers had come to him, asking him to be kind to them because they were afraid because they had sold him into slavery. And this is what Joseph says. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result. Saul and the religious leaders in Jerusalem intended to wipe out this new faith, this new teaching, but instead it spreads. And Saul, one of the ones leading it, actually becomes a convert and becomes an advocate for the gospel himself. Now, as these Gentiles are brought into the kingdom of God, it highlights this transition that they would have felt in a pretty dramatic way, especially these people who had grown up in the old covenant under the law. This idea of circumcision was central to their faith, um, but they also believed and followed Jesus, which was a part of the new covenant. It's important to consider that in some ways the new covenant is the same as the old, but in other ways it's different. So here's some ways that are the same. Important, foundational, is that God is God. He's the same yesterday and today forever. So in both the old covenant and the new covenant, he is loving, he is good, he is just, he is perfect. And that does not change. But two, Gentiles have actually always had access to God. It looked different. It happened as far as we can tell, more rarely, but it, it did happen. So just a couple examples in the Old Testament. One is Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute who lived in Jericho. She was not an Israelite. But when the people of Israel came and, and they marched around Jericho, Rahab was the one who demonstrated faith. She protected the, the spies, and she was saved along with her household because of her faith. Two is Ruth, uh, which was actually referenced in Lucas's fantastic joke earlier. Um, Ruth was not an Israelite. She was from Moab, and the Moabites were hated by the Israelites. Um, but, but she moved to um, Israel, and then she ends up marrying Boaz, and she becomes part of the Israelite community, and that's in large part because of her faith, okay? Um, a third example is this guy named Naaman. Now, he's not as famous, um, but in the Kings, we see how this guy Naaman, who was a general for an enemy, okay, so he was opposed to Israel, um, a slave girl that he had kidnapped from Israel tells him, hey, like, you have this disease. If you go to Israel, there's a prophet there that can heal you. And so he goes to Israel, and he ends up having this interaction with Elisha, and he is healed because of his faith, okay? So that's just three examples of Gentiles in the Old Testament um, that come to God in faith, even though they're not a part of Israel. Another way that it's the same is that to be accepted by God has always been about faith, just like it was for Rahab, Ruth, and Naaman. Even Abraham, the very man that God made the covenant of circumcision with, was declared righteous because of his faith in Genesis 15. In the same way, many Israelites were rejected by God because of their lack of faith. Now, even though there's these similarities, there's also some really significant differences between the Old and New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, access to God necessitated animal sacrifice, which could be facilitated only by select priests, and the holiest part of the temple was even more limited. There was this thick curtain that separated it from the rest of the people. When Jesus died, that curtain was torn in two, symbolizing the sacrifice that had been completed by Jesus in his death as a spotless lamb. Adherence to the sacrificial system was no longer necessary in the worship of the one true God. 
This vision that Peter has demonstrates that food considered unclean under the old covenant is no longer unclean. Jesus also addresses this in Mark 7, saying, Don't you realize nothing going into a person from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach, and is eliminated. And then Mark, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, adds commentary that here Jesus is declaring all foods clean. Now this culminates in the opportunity for an unfettered community. Before, it was practically very difficult for God's people to interact meaningfully with others that did not adhere to the law. Food restrictions and cleanliness customs made it restrictive. This was because God's people were to be set apart. They were to be holy as God is holy, and this was accomplished by following the law. The mark of this was circumcision and being part of the community of the Israelites. We see this in the example I gave of Gentiles in the Old Testament. Rahab and Ruth, they married in. Okay, so they actually became Israelites and are a part of the genealogy of David and of Jesus. Naaman, he went back. He went back home, and he did not become part of the Israelite community. But this is no longer the case. God's people are still to be set apart, still to pursue holiness. But in the new covenant, we are no longer set apart by the law, but by the Holy Spirit. Now, it makes sense that in the midst of all this change, the church in Jerusalem wants to check things out. They send Peter and John to go see if things in Samaria were like going okay. Here, they send Barnabas. It sure seems that the Holy Spirit guides the church to send the right guy too, because Barnabas' name means son of encouragement. And this is exactly what the new believers in Antioch needed. They needed to be encouraged in their faith. He encourages them to remain true to the Lord and devoted in their hearts, and the church increases. Barnabas is full of the Holy Spirit and faith. That seems like a pretty good qualification to have. Barnabas is also connected to Saul, who isn't that far away. He's in Tarsus, and Tarsus is like a one-day journey, whereas Jerusalem is like a three-day journey, something like that, okay? So he's a lot closer. So he goes and recruits him, and Paul is a gifted teacher, well-trained in Scripture, and is the very man that God said would be my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles. God is moving. He is the one making things happen. Peter, Barnabas, and Saul are faithful and available, which is what we want to be. So now I want to focus in on one verse, verse 21. It says, The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The phrase, the Lord's hand, or the hand of the Lord, represents an idea quite common in the Bible. God can either be with someone, or he can be against them. There are numerous examples we could look at, but I just want to point out a few. In Luke 1, John the Baptist is born to Zechariah and Elizabeth, an elderly couple who up to that point have not been able to have children. In verse 66, it says this about John. All who heard about him took it to heart, saying, when, What will this child become? For indeed the Lord's hand was with him. John was born in a miraculous way, which was clearly from God, but also God was with him, and that was a marker in his life. In Acts 7, as Stephen is giving this sermon that leads to his death, he speaks of how the Israelites ended up in Egypt. He says, starting in verse 9, the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his troubles. He gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him ruler over Egypt and over his whole household. Even though the circumstances were against Joseph, he was sold into slavery, he ended up being put into prison at no fault of his own, God is with him and blesses him, ultimately for the protection of his people, the very ones that sold him into slavery. In Ezra, we see that after God's people had been exiled for many years because of their unfaithfulness, God shows his faithfulness by giving Ezra faith, faithful favor, there we go, that's the word, favor with the king. 
Starting in verse 27, it says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who has put it into the king's mind to glorify the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and who has shown favor to me before the king, his counselors, and all his powerful officials. So I took courage because I was strengthened by the hand of the Lord. In each of these situations, we see God's blessing because he was with John and Joseph and Ezra. He's guiding and directing for their good. But there are actually also many examples of God's hand being against people. In Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas encounter a sorcerer named Bar-Jesus, who is opposing the good news. In verse 11, it says, Now look, the Lord's hand is against you. You're going to be blind and will not see the sun for a time. Immediately a mist, a dark, a darkness fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. In Exodus 9, during the plagues in Egypt, Moses is confronting Pharaoh and his unwillingness to let God's people go. Starting in verse 2, it says, But if you refuse to let them go and keep holding them, then the Lord's hand will bring a severe plague against your livestock and against the land. In 1 Samuel 5, the Philistines have captured the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and they actually go and they place it before this idol, their god, Dagon. And twice, the idol just falls down right, right in front of the Ark. And the second time, his face and his hands are smashed in. And then, on top of this, the people get all these tumors. And this is the Philistines' response in verse 7. The ark of Israel's God must not stay here with us because his hand is strongly against us and our God, Dagon. So we see that God's hand can be with us or his hand can be against us. In other words, God does not have to be silent. If you want something to happen, he can do so. He is active. In the case of the gospel moving in Antioch, the very hand of God is supporting the movement, the inclusion and the gifting of the Gentiles, the strengthening and building up of the church. The other phrase that really sticks out to me in verse 21 is turn to the Lord. It says a large number who believe turn to the Lord. We talk pretty often about belief and faith, and that's important because that's central to Christianity and what we, what we do. Um, but this idea of turning to the Lord is actually really important and maybe not as obvious. This language Luke is using is one known very well to the prophets. It is a language of repentance, specifically of national repentance. If there were many examples in Scripture of the hand of God, there's multitudes of examples of this idea of turning to the Lord in repentance. In fact, I could just stand up here for hours and just read you from the prophets, the prophets calling the people to repentance. I'm not going to do that, obviously, but I'm going to give you these three. In Isaiah 6, the prophet is being called to service, and his response to God's call is, Here I am, send me. And this is what God says. Go, say to these people, keep listening but do not understand, keep looking but do not perceive. Make the minds of the people dull, deafen their ears, and blind their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their minds, turn back, and be healed. In Isaiah 31, 6 and 7, it says, Return to the one the Israelites have greatly rebelled against. For on that day, every one of you will reject the worthless idols of silver and gold that your own hands have sinfully made. The people have rebelled against God, and if only they would turn to him and accept him, and they will be accepted by him. Now, this, this last one I'm going to share with you guys, it, it's from Jeremiah 3, and, and it really hit me. Like, when I was reading this the first time, I, I started crying. Like, I was, it was like, wow, um, this, is, this is kind of crazy. Um, and so I'm just going to read some different excerpts from Jeremiah 3. It says, Return, unfaithful Israel. I will not look on you with anger, for I am unfailing in my love. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. You have rebelled against the Lord your God. You have scattered your favors to strangers under every green tree and have not obeyed me. Return to your faithless children, for I am your master, and I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. I will give you shepherds who are loyal to me, and they will shepherd you with knowledge and skill. 
When you multiply and increase in the land, in those days, no, no one will again say the Ark of the Lord's Covenant. It will never come to mind, and no one will remember or miss it. Another one will not be made. At that time, Jerusalem will be called the Lord's throne, and all the nations will be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord in Jerusalem. They will cease to follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. I thought, how long to make you my son and give you a desirable land, the most beautiful inheritance of all the nations. I thought, you will call me my father and never turn away from me. However, as a woman may betray her lover, so you have betrayed me, house of Israel. A sound is heard on the barren heights, the children of Israel weeping and begging for mercy, for they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, ye faithless children, and I will heal your unfaithfulness. And the Gentiles in Antioch were far from God. They didn't have the law or the prophets. They were in the midst of worship to Zeus and Apollo and Artemis and Baal and all these other things. But a large number of them turned away from their sin and turned away from their rebellion. They turned away from this world and instead turned towards God. This actually may be true of some of us in this room. Maybe we've, we've been far from God. We, we, we haven't been spending time with him or reading the Bible or going to church or whatever. Um, we have the opportunity, in fact, to then turn to him. But for many of us in this room, we are more like the Israelites that Jeremiah is talking to. We're close to God. We have access to the good news. We've heard it many times, but we follow the stubbornness of our own evil hearts. God longs to make us his sons and his daughters and give us the desirable land, the most beautiful inheritance, intimacy with him. So the question for us is, will we turn from the worries of the world and the seduction of this age and turn to God? The call is the same either way. If you feel far from God, you feel close to God, the question is, are we going to turn to him? So what we're going to do right now is we're going to enter into a time of worship. The worship band is going to come up. Um, There's going to be people around the side that that would love to pray with you. In fact, they volunteered to do so. So give them the opportunity to do it. Uh, Maybe you need to take a friend and just share with them, like, hey, this is what's going on. This is what's happening. Maybe you just need to get down on your knees right where you are. Maybe you need to stand up and and kind of walk around. Whatever you need to do, um, this time is an opportunity for us to respond to whatever God's doing in your heart, whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do. It doesn't really matter what I say. What matters is is, is how is the Holy Spirit talking to you uh, and what does he want you to do? So let me pray for us and then we're going to enter into a time of musical worship. Father God, we thank you so much. We want to glorify you with our lives. Lord, we want to love you in the way that you've loved us. We acknowledge, Lord, that you're faithful and you're good. And you've given us access to you through your Son, his death and resurrection, and through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, for those in this room today that that don't know you, they're just not sure, Lord, I ask that that you would work in their hearts and that they would turn to you. For those in the room, Lord, that that do know you, that that desire to follow after you, Lord, um, maybe they're being um, distracted. Maybe they're just slipping into some things that they know they shouldn't do. Um, Maybe they've stopped spending time with you. They don't feel close to you. They they don't feel intimate with you, Lord. I pray that you would remind them of how close you are to them. That you would remind them of your availability and that they would turn to you. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.